I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everybody, and Merry Christmas. Welcome into today's very special Christmas episode of the Top Cut Yu-Gi-Oh! podcast. I understand it's not actually Christmas, it's Christmas Eve, but, you know, listen, it is the season, right? So, welcome, of course, everybody, to today's episode. We have, of course, myself and Caleb, my co-host here with me. Hello! And we, of course, want to do our part and thank the ones that are doing their part. So, thank you so much to all of our wonderful patrons. Uh, you know, I should have had the list pulled up, but I got excited. Uh, professionals. I, listen, <laughs> we really are. So thank you so much to Austin Johnson, Kane Martin, Mocha, Myth Oceanus, Scuzz Daddy, AD, Aaron Gardner, Anthony Leela, Damian Zink, Dino DNA, Mountain Man, Owen Alvarado, Pig, Cyber, Jeremy Drysdale, Ray Powell, and Sunny Sweet. Thank you all so much for your continued support of the podcast. And if you are interested in becoming a patron, you can find the link in our link tree description down below. So we want to, of course, introduce our wonderful guest that we have with us today. We have Joe Giorlando. Joe is a high-level competitive Yu-Gi-Oh! player who got most of his competitive success in the 2011 and 2012 years of Yu-Gi-Oh! So, Joe, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? So, I have been playing basically for 20 years now. It's kind of crazy to say that, but I have been playing Yu-Gi-Oh! I wouldn't say competitively, but playing basically since the card game came out. I can vividly remember walking into the mall, the Burlington Mall up in Massachusetts, buying packs of Metal Raiders and the Kaiba structure deck, and had me from day one. And since then... I went to the local scene, the regional scene, the YCS scene, and over the course of the last 20 years, I've enjoyed the game, and now, at this point of my career, spend quite a lot of my time focusing on 
profiling old aspects of the game on my YouTube channel, YGO History, profiling old deck profiles, and even sometimes talking about old matches. But I've taken a few breaks here or there, but 20 years strong in Yu-Gi-Oh, which is over half my life at this point. That is a hell of an achievement. It really genuinely is. Um, I think when a lot of people think about playing Yu-Gi-Oh at a high competitive level, when you look at, and not just at a high competitive level, but in general, when you look at a majority of the player base, a lot of people only play the game for three or four or five or six years. So to be playing even somewhat on and off for the better part of the entire life of the show, of the show, of the game is really no small feat. Um, but I think that as everybody does, you took a path of progression through the seer, through your, um, through your growth as a player. And that path of progression is something that I want to highlight a little bit. So you mentioned from playground Yu-Gi-Oh to your days at locals, then to regionals, YCSs, nationals. Can you tell us a little bit about your growth through those processes and your history of going from maybe just participating in your first locals or participating or even topping locals all the way up to the highest levels of competitive play? Um, More specifically, was there anything in particular that spurred you on to jump from the locals level to those higher levels of play? All right, I will try to answer that in as concise but still authentic as possible because I can get pretty in-depth in that particular question. So for me, I'm going to do just a little bit of a shout-out. We do have an hour, though, so feel free to ramble a little bit. All right. I won't ramble. I'll try to make it concise. But for me, it all began when I realized that about 15 minutes from where I grew up was a local card shop. I'm just going to give it a shout-out because it actually still exists. It's called Batters Up in Tewksbury, Mass. I am... You know, indebted to Batters Up because it was the first local that I attended. And I remember attending my first local. I had a deck legitimately with Garnelius Elefantes, the 2400 normal monster from Metal Raiders, because it was one of the only foil cards that I could afford at the time. Obviously, I didn't do very well. I even know the name of my first round opponent. I'll say he's just his first name, but I do know his whole name. His name's Rob. And I remember after the game, he went through my deck and pinpointed... Yeah, why it was not a good deck, the weaknesses of the deck, and sort of geared me towards focusing on some type of theme. That was my first introduction to the local scene. And I went to Batters Up all throughout those early days of Yu-Gi-Oh! And I'm talking pre-Invasion of Chaos days of Yu-Gi-Oh! I'm talking about the first ban list. I'm talking about when, you know, Legacy of Darkness was released and not knowing what the cards were and seeing people with Injection Fairy Lilies and that excitement of reading these brand new cards. That's where I started. And yeah, it took a lot early. of time. It's early, early. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, I mean, this is 2001, 2002. I said 20 years. I mean, I go all the way back to the very <laughs> beginning. I mean, I remember opening TP1, entering tournaments. So I can Ooh. go all the way back. Yeah, wow. TP1. I actually just got my first TP1 mechanical chaser a few weeks ago. So that's really, really yeah. exciting for someone. Yeah, for someone who played back then and just never picked one up at any point in my entire collecting, I recently picked one up. It's in Spanish, but I got a pretty good deal on it. So I'm excited. It's in flawless condition too but that's amazing oh that's spicy that's a beautiful quote. yeah it is it is so for me the local scene was actually pretty pretty popular back then i'm talking about locals that had you know 50 60 70 players over the years the local battered up kind of dwindled and me and sort of a core group of let's say 10 people continued to go but 
it wasn't overly competitive in some of those early years. You know, people would play their Horus deck or their Warrior Toolbox deck, but it would have cards like Command Knight that weren't really competitive. So as YCSs or rather Shonen Jumps at the time started spawning, that meta didn't really translate to my local scene. But I remember still grinding those early days at locals and never actually winning. I was always, you know, maybe getting to the second or third round and it was single elimination and getting knocked out. And I can vividly remember when I finally won my first local. It was technically during what would have been GOAT format. My actual local itself didn't really have a lot of GOAT format decks per se, at least the way you think about it. I remember calling my parents and saying that I won. So here I am, 14 years old, finally, at that point, thinking I reached the mountaintop. I won my first local. I've literally been going here for three years. I started here with Garnelius Elephantis, and here I am with my Vampire Lord Sacred Phoenix deck, and I finally won a local. And I remember just feeling so accomplished. A year later, though, really, actually, a few months later, I heard some of my local players who went to the SJC that ended the GOAT format in Boston, right? I'm from Massachusetts. I didn't actually go to that event. I didn't know what happened. But retro, you know, after hearing about it and hearing the stories, I kind of got hooked on that idea of competitive play. So 14, 15 years old. The following year at the next SJC in Boston, I went. And that was the first time that I attended anything outside of my local in Tuxbury, Massachusetts. Okay. So I had never gone to a regional. I had never gone to a Shona Jump, but that was the first one. And I remember showing up with my you know, really poorly built, it was a magical hat deck trying to send Dark Coffin to the graveyard to trigger its discard effect from my opponent's hand. It was a really bad deck, but it was my deck. So I, I had a lot of pride in that deck. Didn't do great. I think I went something like 3-3 three, three drop. However, that night, that Saturday night after the event, I was introduced for the very first time to metagame. And that's probably, if you were asking sort of for that singular event in my career that changed everything, it was my introduction to metagame, which is now debunked, but it's, you can find the archives of it, was the original coverage site. So it had deck profiles, it had feature matches, it had really all of the history of the game up to 2006, up to that event in Boston. And it had that day one coverage. And I remember going back day two, watching some of the events, you know, trading, things like that, and then seeing the event live and then going home and reading the coverage. And once that weekend was over, I went back and read every single article, every single deck profile, everything. And I was just hooked on competitive play from that point. So for me, really, my first Shonen Jump, seeing names like Dale Belito on the coverage page and then seeing them in real life, Anthony Alvarado on the coverage page and then seeing them in real life, that environment hooked me. I can relate to that very well. Um, like, the, with those old ARG articles from when I was really getting into the game and getting to meet some of those players in real life at, uh, you know, different events. So I can definitely relate to that. God, I spend easily, like, almost two hours a night just reading ARG articles. <laughs> yeah. That's how we bonded. <laughs> so at that point, I, I wasn't a very good player. So I remember going back to my locals at Batters Up. And at that point, the scene had really dwindled down to maybe 10 or 15 players. I showed up with a Cyberstein deck, kind of taking what I saw at the Shonen Jump in Boston and translating it into locals. And I was just I was just winning every week. And it got to a point where I had sort of hit the mountaintop of Batters Up. Today, Batters Up is a great local, so I don't want to discredit that. You know, 15 years later, Batters Up is a great local. They do it Friday nights, Tuxbury Mass, great place. But at that point, in 2006, the scene was really small. And I was winning without competitive decks. Now I'm winning with Cyberstein, with Zaborgs, with the actual meta cards. So I needed to look elsewhere. And the most reasonable place to go for me then was a place in Lowell, Massachusetts. 
which is actually the city where I went to college. So Lowell would become a pretty big part of my life later on. But I went to a place called Larry's. It doesn't exist anymore, but Larry's was a totally different environment. The scene was much more competitive. There were players there that would in the future top both nationals and shonen jumps. And that was a pretty big step because it was there that I met Paul Clark for the first time, CJ Lack for the first time, you know, eventually interacted with people who I still talk to today, like Jimmy Johnson. It is within that circle in a more competitive environment where I was introduced to Duelist Grounds, which is a forum which is still technically out, but you know, forums themselves have kind of gone out of style. Now people use Discord and other means of communicating. But on Duelist Grounds, it was almost like the competitive version of Pojo. And if I went to Pojo in the early 2000s when I was learning Yu-Gi-Oh, Duelist Grounds is now that where I've graduated to. And it was there that I talked to a little bit more of a competitive group of people. I joined my first online team, my very first online team, playing on you know, Yu-Gi-Oh! Virtual Desktop, if you remember what that is, the first versions of anything even resembling Dueling Book. I had people like Paul on my team, Bowden from Australia, if you're familiar with him, he's gone to Worlds, Jimmy Johnson, yeah. CJ Lack. Our team was called Sergeant Peppers and the Lonely Heart Club's band, reference to the Beatles. Oh my God, and that's really what, oh yeah. That's where the, the really, okay, I'm in at least a circle of people, both online and in person, who are a little bit more competitive and want to be competitive. And it was with that group of people that I started to travel to Shonen Jumps. I went to Montreal with CJ and Paul. I went to Philadelphia. But at this point, I still wasn't really all that successful. I was at least talking to people who were more competitive, but I wasn't doing very well at regionals. I certainly wasn't doing very well at Shonen Jumps. And I wanted to do really well. And the more I traveled to these events and the more I learned about coverage and saw the top players, the more I aspired to reach that level. But I wasn't anywhere close to actually getting to that level in terms of technical play. And I think to some extent, I sort of limited myself by you know, deciding to play decks like Demise, for example, and not trying to push myself to play a deck like Monarchs really well, because you know, I felt like a Shonen Jump is is 10 rounds. How am I going to play a Monarch deck 10 rounds and actually top? I'm just not that good. And that mindset at you know, 16, 17 years old, I think was really limiting to my success at that age. For me, as I got a little bit older and things started to really click was in and around Dark Arm Dragon format. Sort of really, honestly, before Perfect Circle into Dark Arm Dragon. And that's when I got my first regional top. It was during Dark Arm Return format. It was after the emergency bannings and it was in Stratford, Connecticut at Gaming ETC, which is no longer in Stratford, Connecticut, but that was a very iconic regional in the New England area. You would have players from all over the place that would go there. You'd have the top mass players like you know, Cesar Gonzalez at the time. You'd have the top Connecticut players like Jonathan Labounty and Christopher Flores. So you'd have a lot of really top players that would go to this particular event. Nicholas Palmero, shout out to him. And for many years, you know, I felt like I would gone there two or three times and I'd always really struggled there. But in the summer of 2000, I guess it'd be the summer of 2008, I, I finally taught my very first regional. And for someone who had struggled for years actually reaching the point of topping a regional, it was so important because it proved that I could actually do it, first of all. And it totally changed my mindset. And within a year, I had ended up topping something like five or six regionals. After going literally 0 for 20, it felt like maybe 0 for 15 at regionals and not even really coming close. Right. Once I actually finally topped my first one, it was like I went, you know, five or eight or something. It's like once I acknowledged that I could do it, it totally changed the thinking process going into these events. And my success, at least on the regional level at this point, totally changed. That, for me, was kind of a big milestone. It was like that at locals. Like once I finally won my first local, it's like I won every other week. 
after struggling for literally years. And then the next level is regionals. Once I finally got to the point of topping my first regional and getting an invite. And what's amazing about that particular event is it was the last event before nationals. And everyone in my friend group had already topped. CJ had gotten his invite. Paul Clark had gotten his invite. All of my local for Jimmy Johnson has gotten his invite. So everybody had already booked for the nationals that Chris Bowling won with Gladiator Beast. Everyone had already booked their hotels and their plans. And here I was struggling to get my invite. But I finally got it on the last one. A little bit of a side topic, just because I like to point this out. The very last round of that regional, I met Devin Schwartz for the first time. I knew who he was because he had been topping during those years. So I knew his name from coverage, but I actually played him on the last round. I was undefeated, right. so I had already guaranteed my top. But just from playing him, he became such close friends that I actually went to his wedding a couple years ago. He's invited to my wedding next yeah. year. He's actually one of my closest Yu-Gi-Oh friends who I still communicate with. So I always find that pretty funny that, you know, the people you meet, you never know where it's going to go. This guy True. literally... Going to my wedding. I went to his wedding a few years ago. I actually go out of my way to still see him, even though he lives three hours away. But yeah. then I kind of went into a lull for a few years in the sense that uh, I was regularly topping regionals, but the next level is obviously YCSs. And I went all over the place from 2010 to t- into 2011, 2009, all in that vicinity. I went to a bunch of YCSs. And never really even got close in some cases to topping it. People came up with this nickname of Joe Two Drop, which is you lose round one, you win round two, you lose round three, and you drop the Joe Two Drop. And everyone would be like, "How'd you do it?" They've got Joe Two Drop, and usually they were right. You know, I Joe Two Dropped Edison, I Joe Two Dropped um, SJC and Gen Con. I mean, I remember just consistently being able to do well at regionals, but not being able to translate that success to YCSs. And it, it might have had the same thing to do with sort of the mindset of looking at you know just how big of a tournament that is, how competitive it is. And limiting myself with whether it's deck building decisions or just with the mindset going in. On the eve of actually finally topping my first YCS, one of the things that I think contributed to my success was actually reading Patrick Chapin's book, Next Level Magic, which is a totally different game. Uh, But I remember reading it and appreciating the thought process that went into succeeding in magic. And... No joke, the very first YCS that I attended in the aftermath of reading that book was the very first one that I ever topped with Six Samurai at YCS Dallas. And I, I mean, I can remember it like it was yesterday where I was seated in that room. I remember the name of my opponent last round. I remember how that last turn transpired and knowing that I had actually gotten into the top 32 of that event. And then the, the switch flipped just like it did with regionals and just like it did with locals. You know, after going, you know, truly probably over 20 at Shonen Jumps and YCSs, you know, multiple times to Philly, Montreal, Toronto, I had not even come close to topping one for years. You know, basically from 2006 when I attended my first SJC all the way up to 2011. In those five years, I probably went to 20 of them and didn't even come close. But after Dallas, I think if I went back and looked at it, I think I topped something like 10 of the next 15 that I went to. So it's wow. really one of the elements of you know, you ask me about my progression in my career. It's that every time I reached that milestone that I stro- that I really wanted, I think it really helped my my approach and the mindset that I went into future events because it was, you know, I had already talked to YCS, so I should be able to do it again, right? And I think that mindset really helped me. I think at each of those points, you know, being that kid that struggles at locals, but finally winning and then doing it regularly. Being that kid that goes to regionals who can win a local but can never get close to topping a regional and finally getting there. And then literally doing it five times in a row after that. And then reaching the YCS level, which 
at one point, I thought would have been an impossibility. You know, for the longest time, topping one YCS was like my end-all, be-all goal. I could die happy if it happened. <laughs> but then once I had that achievement and the mindset changed, then it became, I don't say easier, but at least my mindset changed. And I think I gave myself a better chance to because I'd make deck building decisions and I think I'd approach the tournament from the mindset of, oh, I can top this. You know, if I put in the work, this will actually translate as opposed to showing up with that defeatist mindset of, oh, 10 rounds, I'm going to eventually play pros. There's no way I'm going to be able to beat them. I remember for, S- for that Dallas YCS, the first one I ever topped, I remember I played against Fraser Smith, who had just won a YCS, the last YCS before. I ended up beating him at that YCS, and just how much of a confidence boost that was. You know, that was just round four. I was like, oh my God, I just beat Fraser. Like, huh. I, I remember just these small things that I think really changed how I interpreted the situations and went into events with different mindsets really helped contribute to sort of the strings of success. Because it wasn't like one local was just without it. It was like every local I would do success at, or every regional I'd have success at, or YCS. I think. For me, that mindset was really a bigger, big contributing factor. Frazier, who you later became a teammate with at Team APS. Is, I mean, not Team APS. Wow, not Team APS. Yeah, at, no. uh, at Alter Reality Games, is that right? Yes, for sure, yeah. Frazier, amongst obviously a bunch of other players, groups in Team Alter Reality Games, Frazier was actually a pretty con- big contributing factor in building the Macro Rabbit deck. I remember in the hotel at the... YCS in Chicago in the aftermath of the change on how priority worked, where you could no longer just priority Rescue Rabbit or priority Zen Maddie or any other card. We built a macro rabbit deck that tried to take advantage of the fact that Effect Failure would see a rise in popularity by main decking Macrocosmos, obviously, as a counter to Effect Failure, but also anticipating Insectors hitting a rise in play. So that macro rabbit deck that I ended up you know, having a pretty good amount of success with in that year it was really a byproduct of both of us working together. You know, I remember us talking, yeah, do we cut Monster Reborn? And he's like, no, Monster Reborn is just so good. And he's like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> if I have Macrocosmos against most matchups, we probably win, even if we draw a dead Monster Reborn. Monster Reborn, though, is so good. I just remember building the deck with him. That's awesome. Um, so for those that are unfamiliar, we have done at least a little bit of discussion ahead of time. Uh, we do have actually the full list of all of your tops, which thank you for this, by the way, because I didn't have this myself. You provided this. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I have a pretty good memory of, of memorable events in my Yu-Gi-Oh career, as is the case with just about any memorable event in your life. Yu-Gi-Oh has been such a big part of my life. I typically remember these events pretty well. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and it's very, very convenient for us. <laughs> um, so... The first YCS that you topped is YCS Dallas 2011 with Six Sams. So let's talk a little bit about that Six Sam deck. Uh, and we're, we're just going to very, 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 very briefly touch on each of these, mainly what the focus of the deck was and um, maybe what it was built to specifically do. So the Six Sams at the time, this is the main event of, I believe, this is right after Gateway released. Is that correct? So Gateway was already out, but it was the release of Shien and Kizan and Kagamusha and Kageki. I actually, I honestly, I could probably tell you stories about every single event with this particular one, that event in Dallas. I flew out alone, which is not something I typically did. I usually flew out with Paul. Paul didn't want to go to that particular event because of just how narrow of an event it was. Gateway was limited to one immediately after. So sort of like a one-off event. But I flew out. I remember in the weeks leading up to the event, I printed out proxies of all these cards. 
I remember I could pick up the Shiens, but I couldn't pick up the Kizans, and I had to borrow them. I had to drive into Lowell to pick them up from a friend, Stephen Schaefer. Shout out to him. He lent me the Kazans, and when I got to Dallas, in the lobby of the hotel room, I saw the red and blue loop, the Mizuho and Chennai loop, the deck that Billy ended up using. Right. And I, in many ways, just kind of not knowing, or not Billy not knowing who I was, I basically just copied the sort of framework of his deck and just built my own version of red and blue. And then I remember round one, game one, I red and blue looped. So infinite combos, infinite six sams, infinite attack, infinite everything. And I can just think to myself, I remember being like, this was a good choice. So yeah. it's kind of funny story that Billy had no idea who I was. And let's say about a year and a half later, I'm picking him up at the airport and he's staying at my house for a Shonen Jumpin' or a YCS. In so he would become a close friend of mine. I don't think he even knows that that particular event, I basically just stood behind him watching him play and then copied his deck. <laughs> Yeah. Hey, we take those. Yeah. yeah I, trust me, for the first one, I'll take it. Yeah. I'll take it. So you go from YCS Dallas 2011. Six Sam was probably the best deck in the room at that event. Just It's no flat. doubt. Nazar won. He knocked me out of the top 32. I mean, like I said, I could give you so many stories. I even remember how he knocked me out of the top 32 with that particular matchup. You know, he opened the sort of the just typical gateway, like multiple continuous field so a really good opening field but i was able to mistworm them all back to his hand and allow him to keep his gateways on the field so that he i bounced all his monsters to hand and his gateways can basically search infinite six samurais because i get i have to normal summon and special summon six sam so he gets counters for that but i made a mistworm pay that bounced them all back and i set solemn warning and i just solemn mormon used solemn warning on his kageki and it doesn't matter if his hand is 25 Kazans. If he doesn't have a six samurai on the field, he can't continue. But he drew reborn for turn. So he counteracted the warning by just reborning a guy and then just beating me. And I was like, oh my god, that was literally the only way that you could put another samurai on the field as an extender. And I just remember being... I was... Honestly, I was so happy to have finally topped that at the time it didn't bother me as much. But had that been right. you know the ninth YCS, that would have been pretty heartbreaking just because... Yeah. It, Losing in the top 32 immediately gets gets old. Yeah. So next you have YCS Orlando, also 2011. Yep. So this one is another pretty memorable one. I flew down to Orlando with Paul. Paul has family in Orlando. So that was one that we actually flew down early. We, you know, saw the site, saw his family. It was a really enjoyable experience. I remember that particular event. I actually almost played Worms, which is kind of funny. You know, if you're familiar with the Worm engine, it's actually a pretty good deck. Like with I think it, it, actually topped, it, it actually topped this it did. event. It actually did. I'm going to get to that because that's where I met Robert Bayajan. Or let me rephrase that. That's the second time that I met Robert Bayajan, who is definitely a friend of mine. We played in a side event at Edison. We played like an hour and a half long side event quick draw mirror match at Edison because there's basically no time in the side events. And we played this massive grind game. He ended up beating me, but we, we like talked for like 20 minutes after about the decisions we made. And then I sat really close to him in the top 32 of Orlando. And I saw that he was running Worms. And I was like, oh my God, Rob, you are my a hero. I almost played that deck. No joke. It was a really good deck and nobody knew how to play against it. But I ended up playing X-Sabers, which is one of my favorite decks of all time. I went undefeated in the Swiss rounds, but then ultimately lost in the top 16 to Black Wings. So that was a, that was a tough one. But that was fun to, to be able to say you went undefeated once. That was pretty cool. Especially after... You know, two events prior was Dallas, so now that made two out of three. In terms of confidence boost, I mean, that was huge. 
Yeah, for sure. And then Paul topped that too. I like to point out that Paul topped that one too, which is really meaningful because he's such a good friend of mine. And he had YCS tops before I did. But he got regional tops before I did and YCS tops before I did. So I was always sort of trying to catch up with him. And having an event where we both ended up topping was really memorable because, you know, we we basically flew down to Orlando and play tested for days ahead of time. And right. he was really good with Gravekeeper. So having us both in the top 32, yeah, he's such a close friend of mine. I'm so happy when he had success. So that was very meaningful. What was the logic behind taking X Sabres into that event? Was it just that it's just of a such? It, it really it's just one of those decks that if you practice and kind of understand the the intricacies of how to take advantage of Full Hell Knight, which is really the card that I think separated a player that could just pick up the deck and just sort of pilot it based on you know past experience versus someone who you know had play tested a lot. Because there are times where you'd go you know summon Ember's Blade, crash into your monster, get Full Hell Knight, enemy control your monster. Now attack it with full Hell Knight, get back Emmer's Blade, crash it into a different monster to get Dark Soul, and now I'll high on lane main phase two, and that's how I'll put Dark Soul in the grave. And that play might just not be obvious because there's like six steps involved in that. A lot of players didn't crash their Emmer's Blades properly or use full Hell Knights properly. They may play it a little bit more passive where they're like setting Emmer's Blades, and it's not really how the deck should be played per se. It, it's a lot more about, you know, taking advantage of Book of Moon, enemy controller, full Hell Knight combos. And I, I just really loved because players wouldn't anticipate one Emmer's Blade turning into High Unlay, right? They'd be like, oh, I, I can just keep setting Bottomlesses. I don't, I don't need to stop anything. And then one Emmer's Blade is all of a sudden main phase two High Unlay Dark Soul Search. And they're like, oh, wow, I just lost my back rows. <laughs> Where did that happen? Yeah. So next you have a YCS Toronto 2011 with Plants. This iconic it, event. Yes, this is one of the more iconic events in the yep. game history. I have more so. stories, so... I'm just going to say, event. Oh, I, no, go for it. I'm not going to take your steam away. I will absolutely let you talk about this event. But if you want the best summarization of this event and the logic behind this deck, particular deck choice, please go watch Joe's video where oh, okay. he profiles the deck and talks about the event. It is such a wonderful video and such a, the whole channel is just such a wonderful resource if you're playing any kind of retro format. Yeah, I, I do tell the story there. So you could go do that. I guess the short, I mean, you should definitely still go watch it, but the short story, I will try to truncate it for sure. Yeah. Not a lot of people believed in plants because it was pretty significantly hit on the ban list. Everybody assumed Agents was the top deck. So much so that I remember, not that Agents wasn't a good deck, but I was in something around six or seven. And when I summoned Lol, they looked at me like, wait, what are you playing? I mean, this was the best deck in the room and nobody really knew. There was something like 16 of them in the top 32, maybe a little bit less. And there may have only been 20 of them in the room. And I remember being part of the group chats with people talking about building that deck. So it's just really cool to see you know, a group of people. I'm talking Frazier and Jesse and Joe Bogley and Paul and all of my close friends showing up with plants and it not really being a deck that the masses were on. And then seeing so many of us be successful. And then, because we're going to talk about the next event, so many of us back to back in Toronto, where it was sort of an unknown best deck, and then back at Columbus, more or less the same format, just with Dark World released, and then a lot of us topping again, obviously with Billy just winning back to back. Yeah, that's it, really is like Toronto and then Columbus. That is two extremely iconic, like that might be one of the few times that you look at in the game's history where it wasn't just one iconic tournament, it was two iconic ones, literally back-to-back. -back. So, yeah. That is I, really... I'm a fan of plant format. 
I put in so many hours that year of Yu-Gi-Oh with Paul. Paul, I mean, I've commented on Paul a few times, but in order to be successful, you really need to have a close-knit group of friends that you're willing to test with, who are willing to put in the work. And for me, that 2011, you know, Paul helped me with a proxied Six Samurai deck. That whole year, Paul and I would meet up before locals and play test. We'd meet up during the week. We put in so much work, and he was such a good player. And I think our play styles worked really well against one another that, you know, looking at those events with Columbus and Toronto, I mean, I can, to this day, remember sitting after locals, just playtesting plant mirror matches and just how beneficial that is to your understanding of the game on, on just a little bit of a higher level when you play against someone who's really good. Because oh, Toronto sure. and Columbus, Toronto specifically, is the first in the sequence of seven YCSs in a row that I attended and ended up topping. Which, to think, if you were to have told me that as the person who couldn't even win a local, to think that I'd you know, sort of reached that point, in retrospect, is just, it's truly unbelievable. And I have yeah. to credit so much to people like Paul, who I had that opportunity to play with during those years. For sure. So, the next one after Columbus is, I'm not going to lie that to Long you, Beach. maybe my favorite. <laughs> so... YCS Long Beach, this is the 100th YCS. Uh, this is including SJCs. They kind of just lumped them yep. all together. And this is, yet again, an iconic moment in the game's history. And this one's really different from most YCSs. Most YCSs, you think, masses of players coming out to just play the game. This one was not that. Uh, the game was... Pretty much everybody hated the game at this time. And... I don't know if you, Joe, have seen the MBT video where he talks with the RJB Zero about this event, but um, there's a pretty popular faction uh, and a pretty popular opinion within the community that you specifically basically saved Yu-Gi-Oh at this event. Wow, that seems ridiculous. Pi so Piper, you, sorry, yeah. Mystic Piper, top four at that event. I mean. Dark World won. There's only one. I mean, in terms of pure meta decks, Dark World is definitely kind of rogue, even though it won. That pipe, that pipe, Piper, Mystic Piper deck was super rogue. Hero was playable, and then obviously Simon he's dying a rapid deck. I, I think that's a bit of a stretch. I, I appreciate it, but <laughs> saved Yu-Gi-Oh. That's a bit much. Well, the idea was that at the time. You had such a large faction of the player base that didn't like the game because, as I'm obviously you know, it was so heavy with uh, Dino Rabbit, which was not a fun matchup, Windups, which was, you know, the looping, and Insectors, which was really not a fun matchup. And the game was so unfun in the opinions of so many people at that time. Not to everybody. I enjoyed the game at that time, but. In retrospect, it looks like a golden age relative to modern Yu Gi Oh! A golden yeah. age. I think the entire went, era was like, a golden age. I, I cannot begin to tell you how many matches I play in modern Yu-Gi-Oh! Where it's like, you win the die roll, you make it such that your opponent can't play, game two, your opponent does it back to you, and then game three, like, it's like four turns. Yeah. But, you know, back in the day, it's like, oh, my opponent opened Rabbit. Like, okay, it's going to happen some percentage of the time. It'll be annoying. But you usually get 10 turns maybe seven, eight turns, even in those older formats, unless your opponent really, truly has the best possible combination of cards like Tour Guide and Rabbit. You know, the amount of turns that you would get against Insectors and Windups 
most of the time. I know the Halo hand loop existed, but in retrospect, those seem like golden ages. I have to agree with you. So you taught YCS Long Beach, uh, which I believe attendance at that YCS, if you include all the people that bought decks just to get the mat and then dropped, was maybe the most attended YCS of all time. Yep, it is. It is. It was actually in the Guinness Book of World Records, four thousand four hundred and fifty. That's it's a lot of Yu-Gi-Oh players. Yeah. I know. That's so bigger than most events these days. The Guinness Book of World Records actually has the name of both Michael Balin, who won, and then Simon Hugh, who lost in the So one of the, you know, sort of like two truths and a lie that I often say is I won game of Yu-Gi-Oh! away from having records as an actual truthful statement, which is kind of cool to think. Yeah, that's awesome. So you top YCS Long Beach with Heroes. Heroes is such an interesting deck choice going into that format, but again... If you watch your deck profile and logic behind that, it's really makes a lot of sense, right? I think in retrospect, yeah. I mean, I obviously would have liked to have won, but I don't regret, obviously, that particular deck. So I guess I can't be upset by it. I think the Dark World matchup, I think with my side deck, I was actually probably a little bit favored. A lot of people thought it was a really bad matchup, but I was siding Shadow Imprisoning Mirror, so I think it was actually not too, too bad. Michael Balin did the thing that Dark World players need to basically turbo into game one or game two or three, which is go into Zen mains because I can't keep skill drain in the deck and I don't really have any outs to it. Game two or three. And he did exactly what he needed to do to really put my deck in a bind. So if the Dark World player is a little bit less in tune with exactly how I side deck, which is to take out skill drain in the matchup, they might not turbo into Zen mains as much. He did. He crushed me because of it. Oof. Well, I. Huh, I That's remember, rough. Yeah. I remember <laughs> I like literally have to like, okay, I'll attack Zen mains. I'll Gemini spark it for nothing. Okay, pop a card end phase. It was like, all right, your Zen mains is going to go plus. I, I truly have no way of dealing with the defense position Zen mains. You're not going to attack into deep prison. Right. There's literally nothing in my deck that I'm going to have game two or three that stops it. What's funny is. Um... I remember reading your tournament report from when this event happened, like a couple of days after and just being so happy because I've been a huge hero fan since I was a kid. So very happy. I mean, that was when you know, so many of this, even the smaller things came together at that particular event. You know, Yu-Gi-Oh is obviously about deck building and preparation, but I remember just being so focused at that event and doing little things like looking at my opponent's life pad and being able to identify what deck they're running. It's a true story. You can ask Anthony Kelly, who's a sort of like a vendor in the New England region. I told him he was playing Rabbit just because of the increments of damage on his life points. And he just couldn't believe it. He was like, oh my God. And then, you know, naturally he summoned Sabersaurus that game. And I was like, I was right. Not that that really influenced my play pattern, but make sure you flip to a new page. And then in another match, I remember sort of asking my opponent, like, oh, Horn of the Phantom Beast, right? Like, some type of question like that. And my opponent's, oh, yeah, yeah, damaged up Horn, and then I dark-bribed it, and the attack forced him to actually lose the game because the 800 wasn't applied from Horn. And my opponent being like, oh, why did I just do that? Like, just the small, like, mind-tricky type stuff that, you know, if I tried that today, I would be able to pull off because I'm just so far removed from sort of understanding the intricacies of the game like I used to. But I remember at that particular event, there were a couple occasions where, you know, the stuff that you hear about actually came up. Yeah, felt like you were on a different level, huh? 
I mean, I never, I don't want to quite say that. I just remember, you know, I feel like today when I play, I acknowledge that the way I play now is the type of play style and the type of play that 10 years ago, not made 10 years ago. Like, actually, I guess it is 10 years ago. I used to just be able to beat because I knew the intricacies really well because I just practiced with Paul all the time. I don't really practice a lot now, so I know I'm sitting there making little mistakes here or there that leave myself vulnerable. And I remember 10 years ago, if my opponent like left themselves vulnerable like that, I would feel really confident about taking advantage of it. Now, I'm the one that's being taken advantage of all the time just because I don't put in the time as I, I once did. And Long Beach was just like right around that point where you know, I playtested all the decks, I knew the matchups pretty well, and you know, my opponent left that little crack for me to take advantage of. I felt like back then I would be able to do it. Gotcha. So the next five YCSs, Atlanta, Dallas, Chicago, Philly, and Seattle, I'm actually going to clump up a little bit. They're all Both rabbit. in the interest of time. <laughs> yep, and yep. Yeah. So uh, all five of those YCSs, they weren't all consecutive, but I think like three or four of them were consecutive at this point. I think Philly was the last consecutive one. Okay, so you you do Atlanta, Dallas, Chicago, Philly consecutively, and then you maybe miss one or two, and then you go. Miami. Uh, did you not attend Miami, or did you just not top it? No, I, I didn't top it. I, I played wind-ups, and I, I just didn't top that particular one. Gotcha. Fun event. Miami's a fun place, particularly in February, which is the month that it was in. And I live in New England, which is quite cold in February, so it was nice to walk around South Beach. Gotcha. And then, so at this point, we're well into 2012. Yep. And then Seattle. So you played ra- Dino, uh, Dino Rabbit, specifically probably Macro Rabbit at all yep. of these. Is that correct? So Chicago is when they changed the ruling with priority, which spawned Macro actually being useful. And then Insectors was so popular. I actually vividly remember during that format with Macro Rabbit, I went 13 and 0 in that matchup. It was a buy. Like some people time, sometimes say, oh, this matchup is a buy. No, like I legitimately won enough matches to top a YCS just against Insectors and never lost a game. Or I lost a match. I, I lost games, but not matches just because with Macro and Lagia and Doka and all that stuff. And I even cited in Veiler so you could hit my Macro and I just Veiler your Centipede. And you needed to basically hold on so much so that you could bait out Lagia, bait out Doka kill macro and have enough playthroughs through the Valor in hand. And that just never happened. But for Seattle, Mermills had just come out, which is why macro was again playable. I went off of rabbit because I just thought it wasn't as good against a format with, you know, windups, for example, as popular decks or gear gears. Those are just tough matchups. Atlanteans yeah. though, totally different story. All of a sudden there's another sort of free win. If you can open up macro. Yeah, uh, I I remember the Seattle being the first event that was legal for Mermail. Um, And then after Seattle, which is late 2012, there's a bit of a break in your topping resume. Uh, It goes from Seattle 2012 to the World Championship Qualifier 2014 with Sylvan. So uh, now 2014, so at this point, this is past... Dragon Ruler, this is past peak Geargea and Mermail and Firefist. Uh, this is into more like Hat and yep. Silk and, and things of that sort. So Yeah, this is about the time we got this is about the time we got out of the game. Yeah, this is right right before we got out of the game. So So I f- finished undergrad in twenty thirteen, May of twenty thirteen. 
and started grad school literally two days after my undergrad graduation. And just sort of just my personality. I, I invested a lot of time in grad school because it was student teaching and just teaching in general. And it can be a pretty time consuming job to do well. Not that the way I was doing it in student teaching was particularly well in retrospect, but at least at the time I thought I was doing well and invested a lot of time in it. So I sporadically continued to play. 2012, I went to nationals and you know, I, I played spell books one year. I mean, I did sporadically play, but I would only go to locals every now and again. And I wasn't 20, rather 2013 is when I finished undergrad and immediately started grad school. As is the case with kind of a lot of aspects of life like that, that I typically invest a lot of time into things I think are important and grad school with student teaching, you know, just learning how to be a teacher in general. I spent a lot of time on it. So I put traveling and I put even locals off to the back burner. I still went to the nationals those years, which I think is the spellbook nationals, the, the dragon rule spellbook nationals, but I was only sporadically playing. I wasn't going to any YCSs. I think there's a pretty massive gap between YCS Seattle and potentially some of the light, the latter YCSs that I attended. I think Miami is one in there somewhere that I went to. But yeah, 2014 Sylvan's May of 2014 is when I finished grad school, so I could start to play at least a little bit more. And Sylvan's was just awesome. One of my favorite decks of all time. Yeah, that deck's that deck's really cool. Again, profile on his channel. Check it out. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, I profile all my favorite decks, I guess. Well I, yeah. I think you started Initially. there. Yeah. Um so now that we've got kind of your resume, your breakdown of some of your more notable tops, I want to talk a little bit about more of the mindset that it takes to compete at that high level. Um, such a high majority of our listener base, and not everybody, we have well-known, well, I say well-known, we have good players and great players in our uh, listener base, but a lot of our listener base is newer players. So I want to talk a little bit about what it takes to take that step from a maybe topping locals or doing well at locals to maybe taking that next step to a regional. And uh, I know you're going to have to dig deep into the memory archives here on this one, but <laughs> uh, can you say that there's anything that changes either mindset or your even something like your friend group? Uh, these are things that can so heavily impact your successes as a player. And is there anything in particular that you'd like to put out there as something that somebody can do to really maybe take that next step. So a lot of it is answers that you might anticipate in the sense that you should surround yourself with a network of people that you, you know, you're good friends with, you're willing to hang out with outside of Yu-Gi-Oh who you also would test with. I think that was the case with Paul and I, he wanted to get better. I wanted to get better. He was a really good player. And I think that really helped, you know, during a lot of these years, he is who I would test with every weekend or sporadically during the week. We'd see each other at locals, travel to events together. So obviously you need a, a group of friends. It's really hard to do this totally alone. So that is to me a huge part of it, both in the sense of traveling, but having that sort of reliable person that you know is also investing the time. So for me, that was one huge contributing factor. I think in terms of the mindset, I definitely think exhibiting self-efficacy is really important, which is sort of the mindset that you can succeed. You know, if you have that defeatist mindset or you look at even a regional, let alone a YCS, and look at the quantity of rounds and the likelihood of playing some of the top players in the area, and you look at that and it's already self-defeating before you even sat down for round one, obviously it's going to be really difficult to put in the best effort. And I think for me, 
acknowledging and realizing after my first regional, for example, or my first local victory, that I could actually do it is what sort of changed the mindset. And now what was once an impossible task suddenly just became the norm. You know, I, I went from, as I alluded to, going to some of these, whether it was a regional or YCS, dozens of times and having so much difficulty and looking at it like I had already been eliminated before sitting down. And then suddenly, once you actually reach the mountaintop the first time, making it, it's almost, not so easy, but just that change in mindset the second time you go to a regional after you've already topped one, you're like, I've done this before. Like, like I can do this. And just having that mindset from the beginning of the tournament, it just totally changes your outcome. So I think having high self-efficacy is really important. And obviously having confidence in, in what you're doing and giving yourself the opportunity to succeed with your deck building decisions. I think a lot of times one of the mistakes that I would make was make deck building choices honestly to try and sort of on the scale of am I trying to win by technical play or free wins, make free win decisions, play Demise OTK, play Chain Burn, play, you know, decks that might on a certain day have the stars aligned that I could top a regional. That's always what I hoped. You know, today will be my lucky day. I'll draw Demise OTK a lot, but if that's what you rely on, you never actually give yourself the opportunity to play the decks that would actually improve your technical play. And I think once I embraced, all right, I, I'm going to play Monarchs. I'm going to play X-Sabers. I'm going to play Synchro Plants or Tengu Plants, rather. Actually forcing myself to play those decks, I think, really helped. And I think once you start playing the decks that are more rewarding for technical play and then obviously playtesting with better players... It's really the, the magic. It's really all of the ingredients that you need to start to see success. When you have the mindset that you can succeed, you've altered your deck building choices to play the decks that will actually improve your technical play and you're putting in the work with people. I mean, those are really three major contributing factors that I think really helped. Because even you know, if I go back, even after topping regionals, I still had this sort of limited mindset of like, all right, I'm going to play Light Swarms during Dark Strike Fighter format. I think it was probably a really good deck, but you know, it has a little bit more of a free win element to it than some of the other decks at the time, right? You draw a charge and recharge and you get a few more free wins here or there than you might if you were otherwise going to play your Black Wings, for example, which might reward a little bit more technical play. And by that point, having invested the time testing with Paul and others, I could top regionals with Lightsworns, but I was still going Joe to drop at YCSs. So I think once I finally accepted, no, let's actually have a growth mindset and invest time into learning decks that reward technical play with the mindset that I actually can do well, I think that's really what it was. So in that vein of improving technical play, um, is there anything that you would particularly suggest to do that? Or is it mainly just trial and error in a lot of ways? Definitely repetition, but honesty is arguably more important because you can't defend mistakes if there are mistakes and if you get into the habit of always justifying your plays on a faulty logic you're never going to acknowledge the mistakes that need to be made that need to be improved because then you're going to make those mistakes when it really matters and being able to reflect on a game you know i have a pretty good ability in the in the in the aftermath of a game to sort of remember at least the events and think all right well is there anything i could have done differently and i really did try to do that quite frequently and the ability to go back and say you know what I did X, but I should have done Y. Was Y not just in retrospect the better thing to do, but in the moment, was there a line of thought that I could have had that would have made Y 
actually the play that I would have made, not just knowing the outcome. So not being sort of outcome-oriented, but instead actually authentically and honestly looking back. And then when you talk to other players about decisions that you're you're making, be willing to receive feedback. You know, don't just always have your back up and try to defend your plays if, you know, potentially those are mistakes. Watching is also huge. For me, the longer I played, the less I needed to actually play per se. You need to play to learn the matchups, just sort of actually sitting there and seeing them on the field and drawing the hands and all that. But I eventually got to a point where just watching was really beneficial to me because I could see what I would do versus what they were doing. And it's almost like you're doing twofold the work. You're watching the game from the outcome of the plays that they made, but also kind of thinking to yourself, what would have happened if I was playing this game? And now all of a sudden you're basically double dipping. That also really helped because if you get to a point where you actually do understand what the matchups are, you can be really efficient in your testing and in your sort of data acquisition by watching, particularly good players. So that, I think that really helped. Gotcha. Okay, cool. That That's all very fascinating. Um, how do you start whenever you decide to play a specific deck? Like how do you decide... What gets you to make that decision of, I'm going to play this specific deck, as opposed to this deck or this other deck? So... There's a long-standing debate of do people have play styles, and I always feel like the answer to that is is yes. I mean, some people think there's just the correct play and there's no gray area. There's been a debate with that for a while, but I generally speaking pick decks that I think play to my strengths. So, for example, if I go back and look at basically the majority of my the events that I was successful with, both in regionals, but then also at the YCS level, you know, plants might not seem like a trap deck, but it has a lot of traps, has a lot of defensive cards. The games are slow. X-Sabers, games are very slow. Rabbit, you know, it depends on how you remember that format, but having played like 50, 60, 70 matches of Rabbit, you don't always open Rabbit and you have to be able to win through Cabazals and Deep Prison. So I generally like to play decks that I think can prolong the game if I don't get overrun by my opponent or I don't overrun my opponent. Because it's inevitable that your opponent's going to wind up loop you. Your opponent will open rabbit. You'll open rabbit. There's those percentage of games in every format that's ever existed for the most part. But if I play a deck that I think is defensive enough that can prolong the game, if I am showing up to these events with high self-efficacy with the belief that I can succeed and I'm confident in the work that I had put in and my understanding of the matchups, the longer the game goes, the more I feel like I'm advantaged. You know, if both players draw sort of their typical deck over the course of a long game, I feel like I'm probably more likely to win if I put in the work ahead of time. Therefore, I typically play trap-heavy decks. I felt like that just gave me the advantage. So I'd look at a format, and I would, generally speaking, sway in that direction. There are exceptions. With Sylvan's, I'll be honest, I was a little partial to just using Lone Fire Blossom because I thought it sort of one of the most iconic favorite cards of all time. And then once I actually played the deck, I embraced a, a, a trapless deck, essentially, minus a couple floodgates for the first time. You know, you would think in that particular format, Hat would be most similar to the play style that I typically like. But Sylvan's was sort of that one time where Soul Charge was just too powerful. That was just the best card. So there are exceptions. If a card is as good as Soul Charge, I'll put the traps down and just play a deck without them. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean... 
We take those. <laughs> I think it takes longer to memorize the decision trees in really complex combo decks. There are cases like with Sylvans. I remember I basically just, I didn't even go to locals with Sylvans. I basically just test through hands every day for the weeks and weeks and weeks during that format. I played that at a couple ARGs and, and nationals. And I basically just knew what the decks were during that format already because I had been paying attention, but just test true hands. Like what would I do with soul fire plus one lone fire here, plus a miracle there. And I would just test draw combo hands, but that's a lot of work. You know, you don't really need to test draw dino rabbit hands. You just need to play. I prefer to play decks where the testing is not just drawing your opening hand and seeing what combo you can do, which is what I think Sylvans were. So I, I generally strayed away from Sylvans style decks, right? I, I wasn't really playing the heavy, heavy combo decks. And even in a modern context, I test through Drytron to learn what they do, to learn how to stop it, but I would never, ever, ever play that at a YCS. Interesting. So do you think that the consistency and I'm not going to say repetition of a slower control strategy, but being able to make those smart one for one trades or two for ways whenever you can and just slowly build the advantage and take over the game state is just more conducive to a long term run in some kind of these some of these events. So I think what's important is if you're going to play a deck like that, I always liked having the ability to sway the game in your favor relatively quickly. You know, with X-Sabers, it, it was very slow-paced, and you could create a game state where you're clogging the board with Ember's Blades and Dark Souls and Peshuls. But you also had the ability to sort of take advantage of a slower game state by setting up a trap stun high on play. And, you know... A Fultural, Chain Godem's Call, Seven Tools, Your Back Row, and make it so that you take total advantage of the game. So I think, yes, these decks, generally speaking, are advantaged by slowing things down. But you need to have a game plan, too. I think that really helped also my, my overall understanding of Yu-Gi-Oh!, which is I'm actually trying to win. I need to learn how to win, which sounds really odd. But I feel like for so many years, I didn't really understand what it meant to win, which is not to set to Koichi, set Sakuratsuara, and have this beautiful scenario where they summon Didi Warrior Lady and attack, and then I get to flip to Koichi and tribute for the Stalos, which is sort of like the greatest scenario that could happen if I go T-set to Koichi, Sakuratsuara, and instead learn to actually be able to win games by developing a game plan in the middle. And some of these slower decks, plants, X-Sabers, yes, it prolonged the game, yes, it gave both players more draw phases, but it also gave you the wiggle room to game plan for, all right, this is the turn that I'm going to try and turn the tides or have my opponent sort of play into what I'm doing and then take advantage of it that way. Right. I, I feel like I learned to win, which was, which was huge. And Rabbit might not seem like that type of deck, but it kind of was. You'd whittle your opponent's resources down by pressuring them by doing must stops. Like, okay, you have to deal with this Guaiba. All right, I have two normals. Like, you have to deal with them. And then when I played Rabbit, one of the things that I did really regardless of the time I played Rabbit, is if I could, I would keep Rabbit in my hand as sort of the last thing. So I would, Guaiba would bait out a back row, and then two Cabazals would bait out a back row. And then all of a sudden, now that they've used three defensive cards, now I'll summon Rabbit. And now they're like, wow, uh, I've used all my outs, and now Rabbit would be the card that went over, and I sort of had that game plan. 
I think that was really important. So these slower decks, I think, they reward you for reading back rows. They reward you for some of those technical things. But I think it also allows you to improve when you have that mindset of, how am I actually going to win this game? What What is my actual game plan? And those slower decks give you the turns to develop one. Gotcha. We're going to take a quick moment to go into an ad read. Yes, uh, so as always, we are sponsored by our locals over in Alexandria, Alexandria Louisiana. ETB Games, uh, the best place to go for all your nerdy needs. Uh, they got D&D stuff, Yu-Gi-Oh tournaments, Magic tournaments. Stuff. I'm pretty sure they do Friday Night Magic. I'm not her- I'm like 99% sure they do. Uh, Digimon, just whatever you need. And, you know, we're there sometimes. It is a wonderful place to come in and check out and find everything you need for all of your card and tabletop needs. And, of course, thank you to ETB Games for sponsoring the podcast. For continuing to sponsor the podcast. Yeah. So, we want to talk a little bit about the recent announcement that we got of alternative sanctioned formats by Konami. So, they announced five new alternative formats, uh, which we all saw. Uh, Joe, you posted a very insightful video for this specifically and covering this topic on your YouTube channel. I recommend everybody check it out. Just like... You should check out basically every video on Joe's YouTube channel. Um, but they introduced a Rivalry of Warlords format, which is like a pre-built deck thing from your locals. Deck Master, which is very cool. Common Charity, where you're only allowed to use commons. Part of the Underdog, where you are... They ban certain like meta strategies. These entire archetypes just gone from the meta for this one tournament. For the idea of rogue format play. But what we're really going to focus on here because this is i know where joe is really this is your niche is the time wizard format so i'll read it as it was sent to ots store specifically that way we have the exact wording and paragraph used by konami so the time wizard format is a way for ots to sanction retro format tournaments the tournament setting will revolve around the rules and mechanics of the game as they were played during a specific point in time all that is required when setting up the tournament is the forbidden and limited list being used and the latest legal set. For example, if Time Wizard traveled back to the U.S. National Championship in 2005, the tournament would be using the April 2005 forbidden and limited list and the last legal set would be Dark Beginnings 2. So this is essentially if you wanted to play GOAT format and sanctioned play, this is how you would do it. Uh, GOAT format, Edison, Dragon Ruler... Any format, really, just any previous format. Right, so the guidelines here, though, are obviously you use the rulings and rule set from the game at the time. You use the, you have to choose an exact ban list and you have to choose the latest legal set. So, with that said, I would like to hear, Joe, how you think, what kind of a move you think this is by Konami. Do you think it's a good move, a bad move? How do you feel about it? And more specifically, what are some of the potential time frames that you're looking to play? So I, I, I think it's a good move. I think there is a space for this that has existed for a pretty considerable amount of time. You know, other card games have other formats. Traditional is not a supported format by Konami, though I guess they could try. And the idea of being able to play older cards and older strategies and going back in time is fantastic. Unlike, and I think most people compare Yu-Gi-Oh, I guess, in terms of overall scale to Magic the Gathering, unlike Magic, 
their older formats, quote unquote, just expand what sets are legal, like through the rotation system. It's not really, quote unquote, unless you want to play old school, but when you play, let's say, Legacy, which is a format that's basically every card minus a, a select amount, it's the newest releases, but also the early 90s releases. So it's a little bit of a different universe because they just keep printing cards and that format is just everlasting. We actually want to play a literal time 2007 April, for example. So it's going to require a lot of work to actually work. And I think the way that announcement was worded does take into consideration some of my concerns that I talk about in my most recent YouTube video, which is, you know, we have to pinpoint events, not formats, because formats are way too open-ended in terms of rulings, in terms of card releases. There's a lot of issues there. And I think the way they worded that suggests that they realize that. I think for this to be done perfectly, they need to develop some type of database of rulings and erratas that's accessible. You don't want someone to go to a local and sort of get surprised by the way something works. But, you know, I think there's two ways of looking at this. There's what's probably going to happen, and then there's the pie in the sky. What will probably happen is that there will be a reasonable amount of interest at locals. They'll probably run the most popular formats like Edison, GOAT format 2014, maybe Toronto. And that will be the bulk of it. You get OTS packs and that's just about it. Where it could extend from that point realistically is maybe side events. Maybe they'll have a giant card of scapegoats or a giant card of metamorphosis or spirit Jinzo. reaper and Jinzo. Yeah, whatever the vintage card is that we're talking about. And that's exciting. You do need to sort of pick where Time Wizard is going to be oriented for that. So I think ahead of time that this would be announced, it's not like you show up and it's surprise, it's GOAT format, or surprise, it's Edison. You'd obviously want to pack your cards accordingly. In Just to be brutally honest, I think that's the extent, is that it'll be side events at YCSs on maybe Sunday. The pie in the sky is if this actually turned into a YCS, which is not likely to happen for a lot of reasons. It'd be super cool. <laughs> It would be for it to happen, the numbers would basically need to rival an actual modern day YCS. Trust me, I wish it could happen, but if they're going to have an event in Philadelphia, they get 1,800 players showing up to play modern Yu Gi Oh! Why risk it by playing 2007 Yu Gi Oh? If you told me that 1,800 players would reasonably show up to that event, or maybe even more, right? If it's more, then Konami will absolutely do it. I guess it's a lot at that point on content creators to garner interest and on their on their end, Konami, of doing things like, for example, announcing the focused format. You know, let locals do whatever they want, but say at the side events of YCSs and regionals, we are going to play, let's say, Troop Dupe Nationals. That's the point in time that we're in. That way players can prepare. That way players know ahead of time if they do want to invest in actually traveling to a YCS, what they're going to do. Locals could gear their events for that format. And I think there is the possibility. There is a universe where it's pie in the sky, everything we need to go right. But maybe that's where this could go. I, I really don't think that's a very likely chance. I even think giant card side events is at least a year plus off just because they probably need to experiment with this quite a bit. And due to COVID, they just don't have the ability to do so. Right. In terms of what um, I would love to play, just honestly, just about anything. I would kill to go back and play some of the formats where, in retrospect, they're really great formats. But at the time, I, I was playing you know, Bad Warrior Toolbox decks. 
you know, cash return format was not a real thing at my local at Batters Up that I was talking about earlier. I would love to go play that format because that's a really good format. It's very similar to Go Control, but not nearly as appreciated. I think I recently posted four deck profiles from that format. I love that format. Really good format. I would love to go back and play that. I'd love to go back and play, honestly, any format up until the point basically when I started grad school in 2013. Any of them. You name it, I'll play it. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. But then, of course, there's also the possibility, the possibility which I, I personally think that this is 100% guaranteed, uh, they're going to add this into Master Duel. So then they'll have, like, okay, we're playing this ban list, and then in and then in the Master Duel game, they'll give you your pool of cards you can use from this, you know, from, oh, it's this ban list. Oh, it's, yeah. you know, the Edison ban list. Here are the, here's the legal card pool, and then you can build your deck and test it through Master Duel. Yeah, that automates the big issues that I was talking about of erratas and rulings. The thing with that is that's awesome. That would be amazing. You know, maybe I'll stream Master Duel during the summers off. I'm not even kidding. I'd play so oh, much of that probably. No streams when? <laughs> yeah, well, it would only be during the school year. Uh, during the summer, not the school year. The school year is not easy for stuff like that. But in all honesty, if that was a thing, I think it would help content creators. And if, you know, the numbers will speak for themselves. If Konami at least provides the arena for older Yu-Gi-Oh to be celebrated, to be played, to be featured, to be acknowledged, the numbers will speak for themselves. And if the numbers aren't there, this will never get to the YCS level. This will be a local thing. It probably will happen maybe sporadically at the side events of YCSs on the giant card level if we're lucky. But if the numbers speak for themselves and people are to buying these old cards if they're you know, if konami can print products that's super big right like konami makes money because they print b troopers and people need those cards and soul sword soul and all those new archetypes if people can buy into a product because there's reprints of metamorphosis which hasn't been reprinted in you know yes <laughs> years. so if konami can make money off of this by selling products and they could you know they could release you know you can come up with a better name, but you know, vintage pack one, which is cards that would have been playable in the format that we are featuring for the next six months. And you can have, you know, ultimate red metamorphosis, starlight scapegoats and you name it, right? We can have all these ridiculous rarities. Look at what magic. The gathering has done. I don't know how familiar you are with magic, but they have just overflowed the game with high rarity, different variation. I mean, you have cards that are, Walking Dead characters. You have cards that are Bob Ross art. I mean, Magic has gone bananas with but, card art but, in real world, but, not just card art online. Like over yeah. the top with, with the there aesthetic. Was actually a, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, that's my like. They've gone over the top. Think how much room there is for Yu-Gi-Oh to say, you know, are people going to pay? How much do people pay for an Ultimate Metamorphosis? And you know, people are paying thousands for a Super Metamorphosis. Obviously, I know the year and the the scarcity is going to affect things, but people pay $250 for an ultimate imperm. If people knew that they could play an ultimate metamorphosis at Konami sanctioned events, that that'll drive product. You know, we have ghosts of the past. Why not? We call it something else and put a bunch of reprints in there. If it will sell, that's important. If it won't sell and people won't play it, it's not going to go very far, but if the numbers will speak for themselves. And if you give content creators the opportunity to really push for this, put out videos, put out duels, put out deck profiles, and people will watch it. I'm just going to point this out because I think it's interesting. 
I have, I think something like 48 videos on my channel. I posted two hours ago, my thoughts on organized play with retro Yu-Gi-Oh! And it is my number one most viewed video in the first two hours. <laughs> Which, I mean, we're talking about hundreds of views here. It's not like I'm like that over the top of a, a Yugi tuber here, but my typical range is 190 to 240 in the two hours. This video is 374, which is, you know, a, a good reasonable amount higher. So people are curious enough to watch my thoughts on organized retro Yu-Gi-Oh. Does that mean that 374 people would show up to a YCS? Hopefully it means that two or three times that would show up to a YCS. But people are interested in watching it, so who knows? Who knows? You know, if Pack and I imagine, you know, every streamer you can imagine devoted some time to Retro Yu-Gi-Oh! and Konami picked a format that people focused on, I feel like people could fall in love with something that they don't realize that they would love. Because you sit and you play and you're like, oh, Imperial Order, great. You sit and you play and it's, you know, Harpy's Feather Storm and you're like, oh, this is great. Oh, Scythe Lock. Oh, Drytron again. And you're like, I really wish I could just play the game. Well, you want to play the game? Go play chaos return format you'll play the game for 30 turns and it'll be close and in the aftermath you'll be able to go back and think about all the mistakes you made and errors you can improve upon if you really love like actually going back and forth and playing Yu-Gi-Oh, go back in time you might fall in love with something and if it's actually sponsored and supported the numbers will speak for themselves definitely the money will flow yep money talks and i think if people are investing in a product that's created just to test the waters, right? If they release a pack and it's like Ancient Guardians and nobody buys it, well, that spoke for itself. If they fly off the shelves because people want these old cards and new rarities and starlights and alternate art and you know, the, the avenues that they could go are obviously endless there. And they're doing a little bit of it, you know, with all the starlights and whatnot that come out. And people buy it and it sells out. And they're like, wow, okay. Well, people first are buying it. And then they put it on Master Duel, which I think they're going to do. I think that's a very logical conclusion. And those tournaments launch, and they're popular, and they're like, all right. And then maybe they do a YCS, and 300 people sign up for a, a side of it, and they're like, wow, we weren't even prepared for that many. Maybe they'll put two and two together. But people actually have to speak with their cash, right? Speak with their wallet. They actually have to invest in it. And Konami needs to see it as a, as a revenue booster. Because if they see it as a money dump, it's not going to go anywhere. I think that the best way for Konami to really garner a lot of hype and a lot of interest in something like this would be to do something similar to what they've done with Speed Duel in that the Battle City box and the upcoming GX box, you can buy one box with, say, I don't know, just off the top of my head, 15 to 20 randomized pool of cards. And then maybe three or four pre-built decks from that era. Make it a $40 MSRP product. That's fine. But when you look at it, you can have your guaranteed, uh, okay, well, you get one Goat Control deck, you get one Cast Turbo deck, you get one Warrior deck, and then you may get maybe one whatever, you know, Cat OTK, whatever, you know, or even three decks would be fine. So you take and you get two or three or four decks from that format, and then you get one or two packs in the box of you can just do like nine cards a piece per pack with your chance to pull like you said like the ulti metamorphosis i mean think about what an ulti blackluster soldier envoy of the beginning would be worth think about how hard people would go for that 
And then you can do, say, if you want to do one for GOAT format or one for Edison, uh, the amount of formats that you can realistically build a box like this for are endless. I mean, the... the oh, the, I mean, it's, it's actually... It's like me making my videos. It's like, oh, well, I've made 50 videos and there's 800 more I can make. Yeah. So, like, the way I would actually market something like that, me personally, me you know, kind of sitting here thinking real quick, I think people would really love the idea of it's a time capsule so like the uh Yu-Gi-Oh 2005 time capsule where instead of the battle city box or what or the gx box yeah theme it like a time capsule yeah and then <laughs> slap dark then step slap time wizard's face on the front you're done yeah and time then, wizard format yeah, true uh, you know Yu-Gi-Oh, you know uh nationals 2005 whatever yeah and then like whatever it is for uh sjc edison specifically yeah you know? yeah you know that that you know uh, uh whenever Teledad was blah 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 for number three in the two thousand eight is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep, it was the fall of two thousand and eight after Gladiator Beast format. Yeah, yeah, and then again, make it you know there's something else you could do to make it kind of stand out on the shelf itself instead of it being a box, kind of rounded around the edges a little bit, almost mm-hmm. like a like a capsule. Yeah, like a actual capsule. Yeah, I think it's. There's so much that they can do with this, and if they just market it correctly and promote it correctly, I mean, realistically, even better, I think even better, instead of doing three or four, you could do two boxes per format with two decks each. Yeah. That way you can say, they market it as, hey, you and a friend want to play this format? Here is a list of the, you get a small printout, similar to like a rule book, but maybe a little bit thinner. Where it's like, you know, these are the relevant rulings and changes yeah, that are different of the from, format. That are different from standard. Right. And here's two playable decks. You and a friend, go at it. $20 product. Two decks. Yeah. And then maybe a couple of packs to power up the game or whatever they want to yeah. say. Or Magic I mean, has like battle decks, like where you buy pre-made decks that have some relevant cards for standard, technically, but Magic has a similar type of product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't play Magic at all. That just that's coincidentally worked out. <laughs> yeah, uh, a couple of years ago, they sold this thing where it, you'd buy it. It was like this one product, and it gave you a uh, a uh, mermaid deck and a goblin deck. Both both the decks were actually pretty good. Um, Is this Magic you're talking about? Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm lost on Magic. Yeah, like uh, the Magic deck had a card called Krenko Mob Boss, who would just like the, the goblin deck's whole shtick was putting out goblin tokens. And then utilizing Krenko Mob Boss's ability to just duplicate your tokens. Mm-hmm. So I know what Krenko does. Do what? I know what Krenko does. Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So you'd activate this uh the source the sorcery or spell card and get two tokens. Effect to Krenko. Now you have four. Next turn, if they don't if they don't die, now you have eight, and it just keep right. But the point is to like put these constructed type decks from the time in these sets is which yeah of course we're doing this with Yu-Gi-Oh. see and if people will buy them then there's a chance there is a chance i think the i think the key is to put the lottery ticket in there you know like you you, said you have to have starlight metamorphosis and chaos sorcerer whoof that would look so nice oh dude and i get i just so many old cards even so many old cards have beautiful printings already and the beauty of this is typically even if they release like let's say a starlight of metamorphosis your old vintage cards usually don't get affected by that type of stuff 
So that's good for the collector. I mean, gen- things can change, but generally speaking, because let's say Super Metamorphosis is so old, it's still going to retain value, a lot of value, even if they release Starlight Metamorphosis. You know, look at, for example, Book of Moon. They released Ultimate Book of Moon. Well, Super Book of Moon is still $500 plus. Exactly. Perfect example. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think there's endless possibilities, and I'm excited to see the direction that they go with it. Oh, so am I. Well, cautiously excited. Cautious. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things where it's like, who exactly in Konami is working on? Robert Bayad? I don't know. Or Billy? Like, I know people who I trust who have worked with Konami or are still working with Konami, so it depends on who's in their ear. If they do it right, possibilities are endless. Maybe Pie for the Sky. Yeah, best move they ever made if they do it right. I mean, you could have... The other thing is, even if you do just one YCS a year, so many people who do not play modern Yu-Gi-Oh will mark that on their calendars and play Yu-Gi-Oh once a year. Just once a year. But that's all it needs. You know, how many, let's say, hundreds of players would come back? Could it be enough to fill the convention center like they would for a typical YCS? If we can hit that threshold, you know, if a convention center would normally get 1,500 and we get... 1500 for a retro YCS, but because it's only once a year, that's what actually got 100. Then it's possible, but we can't have a 200 person YCS in a venue that would hold 1500 that would have had 1500 with modern Yu Gi Oh! Then it's a money loss, they know it didn't work. And as wishful as this could be, we are just a small community. We need to expand, garner new interest, promote it with. Content creators, locals need to promote this stuff. People who do not play and never played retro formats need to see it, engage in it, see if they like it more. And in addition to that, there needs to be older players, I guess like myself, who would travel to that one event a year because they know that their one chance to see old friends and play an old format that they loved. Right. All right. So I got a couple of quick hit questions. We're just Go gonna do it. quick play kind of style. Um, your favorite era of Yu-Gi-Oh that hasn't had its boom in modern times, like Goat and Edison and Tengu Plant and 2014 Nats, they've all had our big, their big booms. But is there a particular format that you're just like, this one deserves way more uh, attention? So the Nationals format, honestly, the format right before Nationals, when it was XA Gravekeepers, the Plant deck, basically when, when Tyree Tinsley, a good friend of mine, who's actually going to Pasadena, cannot wait to see him next month, won the YCS in Providence, Rhode Island. That was a really good format. Really, really good. Before Librarian, so Tengu Plants was still good. It was a real deck. You could tour guide for Sangin and just pass. Good format. And then I really love Chaos Return. Gotcha. So Chaos Return would be like 2006? That's the summer of 2006, yep. Nationals that Austin Coleman won, who I really hope to see also at Pasadena, because he's from California. You'll see us there. Woo! Woo! I will, yep. (laughs) Um, so when playing legacy, uh, formats like Go Edison, et cetera, sure. do you prefer the legacy lists or the modernized versions of those decks like chaos turbo versus traditional go controller, Panda burn, you know, things like that, or yep. fish OTK and Edison is more of a newer thing. You know, when I show up to events with old decks, I play decks authentic to the time period. I generally like that because I think it's. I, I do it because it's nostalgic and fun, not necessarily because I need a space to create, per se. Don't get me wrong. I like having that opportunity, too, and there are times where I'll look at old formats and 
kind of rethink what I should have been doing during that time period. But if I'm just playing for fun, for fun, keyword there, I like to use decks authentic to the time period. If we're actually going to have a YCS, throw that out the window. We are modernizing and efficiency is going to become number one. And we are going to, we're going to play modern recreations of these decks, which is honestly, I think, okay. I think that's the way to go. It's unavoidable. It's not like, Hey, this is goat format. You know, let's be, you know, gentleman's rule, no dust shoots. Like, no, let's, we're playing to win. Let's play the format to win. And if that means we're not going to do exactly what people did 15 years ago, well, people have improved in their understanding of game theory and Yu-Gi-Oh in 15 years. So, Let's embrace it. But if I'm having fun, we are playing two old school deck card card for card old decks from old YCS tops or SJC tops. Love it. Um, can you ever think of a meta call that you made at a tournament and that just failed miserably? So I, I mean, basically anything that I did before ever actually topping a Shonen Jumper, probably not. I mean, some of them were fine. I played Quick Draw at the edit at the SJC that. Jeff Jones won with just literally that deck. In terms of sort of after my, you know, after I actually started to do well per se, I feel like, I feel like, let's see, it's a tough question. It is. I feel like for the most part, I was pretty okay with it. They were, I, I went back to the hero well twice and didn't top either of the events with heroes after Long Beach, where. You know, had I played Rabbit or one of those other decks, maybe I would have done well. I went back to it in Columbus, and I went back to it in the Toronto that Josh Graham won with windups. That's actually probably the one. At the SJC, sorry, the YCS, that Josh Graham won with windups, I knew Pat Hoban's combo. Right? Pat had basically told the combo about how to shock lock people. I knew the combo, and I knew about needle sealing. I actually thought of needle sealing as an out to the shock lock at like four o'clock in the morning, driving to Toronto. You can ask Stefan, an old friend from Massachusetts. I literally woke him up at like four o'clock in the morning. I'm like, Stefan, the last four hours of driving in the middle of the night, I've been thinking about how to beat Shock Lock to use trap. It's used needle sailing in your opponent's standby phase before they get to use Shockmaster again. You'll, they'll have enough monsters. You set something. In retrospect, I played Hero at that event just because, you know, tried and tested heroes. I should have just played windups. <laughs> One. I could have worked with Pat and built a great deck. He ended up topping that event or coming close to it. Josh won the event with windups. And I knew the card that countered it. But basically nobody else knew. So that was a mistake. And you didn't play it? No, I played Heroes. God, which was yeah. a really bad move too because Geargeas had just come out and were pretty good. And that's a really hard matchup when they're setting, you know, Geargea armor. So I remember the last day of... Last match of day one, I got knocked out playing against Girgia. This is a tough matchup. Right. So we've talked for an hour and a half now about Joe the player, and I want to talk a little bit about Joe the creator. Because over the last couple of, probably the last year or so, I want to say, mm -hmm. you've really taken a step in a different direction. And... You've taken all your experience in all these plat pass formats. You've taken all your experience as a player, or as a high level, you know, connoisseur of game, and you've really pivoted into your role as a creator. And sh surely, some of your background takes um, 
might play into this uh, on educating the people of these older formats. So I want to talk a little bit about your YouTube page as YGO history. Yep. So for those that are unaware, we mentioned at the beginning, and of, obviously there will be a link down below, but we want to talk a little bit about what the YGO history channel, how that came about and how you feel it's a wonderful resource for people, not just that are playing retro formats, but are playing to this day. So as is the case with many people, COVID, you know, opened up a lot of time at home and, and I stopped going to work. I had to teach from home, you know, the first, so when I talk about COVID, I typically think of, you know, the first COVID school year, which is the March to the end of the first year that it happened. And then the second COVID year where I actually went to school every day, but taught hybrid now runs to the third COVID year now. So COVID year one of the school year, when I actually was at home every day, you know, the actual workload, it was still reasonable, but, you know, teaching from home is just a totally different experience. You know, you weren't, you know, Zooming or anything like that. You were just posting assignments, grading things, and, you know, doing your best to keep students on task. I obviously had a lot of free time being home every day. And as is the case with a lot of people, I, you know, brushed off my binders. And at that point, I had, as I alluded to earlier, started playing modern Yu-Gi-Oh! again. But all of a sudden, there's no tournaments. I don't really like playing on Dueling Book. There was that vacuum where I was like, oh, I just started getting back into Yu-Gi-Oh! again. And what am I going to do? And I started looking back over my collection and finding cards that I was missing here or there. Like, oh, I only had, you know, two Super Icarus attacks from DR4. Like, oh, I really want to find a third. And I, I started slowly desiring to fill out gaps in my collection from the years. And at the same time, there was this sort of boom in players going online and playing old formats. And the stars just aligned such that I thought to myself, I lived through so much of this. You know, I literally started on day one. Not all of it, but certainly a large portion of it, even if I wasn't necessarily all that successful. I do remember being there and seeing you know, Troop Dupe format. I remember going to SJCs, not doing super well, but I remember watching Dale Belito play and Paul Levitin, and I could just go on and on with the names of these top players. I remember standing behind them and watching them like in awe of these players and the decks that they were running and then going on metagame. And the idea of profiling these old decks just was really appealing because I still have all the cards for the most part. And if I didn't, it inspired me to have something to look for, right? It's a collectible card game, being able to, you know, go on eBay every day and oh, is somebody finally posting this one super rare that I need or one ultimate to complete my set so I can finally profile this. It sort of gave me something to do every day that, that I really enjoyed. And, you know, as I started making the deck profiles, I just realized how nostalgic it was and how much I enjoyed re-sleeving these decks. I mean, I had them all in sleeves in my binder. My binders all sleeve one brand. But putting them all together, you know, I make these profiles, then I shuffle up, do some test draws, and then all right, I put it away. You know, that was fun for 20 minutes. And just how in much enjoyment and satisfaction I got. And, you know, I make the videos for intrinsic reasons. You know, since making the videos, my channel did become monetized. But, I mean, trust me, I spend way more finding some of these old cards to profile than I do <laughs> making it. You know, I just recently, just literally yesterday, won a eBay auction for my third Super Spirit Reaper so I can profile Dark Hall Reaper format. It takes like, let's say, five months of videos to equate to the amount of money that that Spirit Reaper just cost me. But I'm going to have so much fun profiling Reaper Dark Hole format because it's just such a good format. So I've really enjoyed the nostalgia of building these decks and the comments. I mean, I read all the comments. 
and so many people have that same feeling watching them that I just feel, and I just need to keep going. I mean, I feel like people are enjoying the content on that. If they enjoy watching as much as I enjoy making it, then I know they're enjoying it because I just love laying the deck out on my mat after having played with these cards in so long and just reliving it for a few minutes. And then, as you can clearly tell if you've listened to this podcast for 90 minutes, once I start thinking about these old events and old decks, I, I just have endless stories. Like, I felt like in some cases I've had to cut back some of these stories just because I could go on forever. <laughs> so making these profiles, it's just, it lets me relive, honestly, a huge part of my life that I put on the back burner when I started teaching. And you're right, there is a little bit of the fact that my day job is to be a teacher, so to try and explain things and relatively efficient coherent ways and then taking that into a huge passion in my life it's really just melded the two together so between the comments and nostalgia it's really what motivates every single video that i've made yeah i don't know if you ever watch any streams but uh you're pretty frequently mentioned in some of the largest creator streams out there i know mbt brings you up constantly (laughs) I yeah. Every now and then, I get this little like spike in subscribe. I get like twenty subscribers in a day, and I'll be like, okay, well, either Farfa commented on me, MBT commented on me, Pack and I sort of always communicated back and forth, and have sort of collabed several times. But yeah, if I see a spike in my subscriber count by like twenty, I know something's happened. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny. There's been a couple of times when, um, like for example, I know. MBT very specifically uses your videos as a resource for his history of Yu-Gi-Oh series that he does with Simo. Yeah. And anytime he's like, all right, guys, you know, in stream today, we're going to be practicing whatever format. And he's like, all right, who's got a deck list. And it's like, invariably somebody just drops a YouTube link to your, your channel for one of your videos. He's like, Oh God, yes, this is exactly what I wanted. He's like, <laughs> he's like these videos are just the best resource in the world for retro formats. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, it'd be pretty cool, right? If this becomes a real thing, I know it's sort of an older topic, but, you know, there will obviously be a space for retro content beyond just the sort of small group of people who played those days. I mean, I would love for the channel to take off even more, not necessarily for financial reasons or anything, but, you know, I love hearing people comment on how much of a resource they found my videos. And if more people get to watch them, and more people get to enjoy them, and it actually helps them translate into playing these old formats. I mean, that's just awesome to hear. Well, you don't become a teacher for financial reasons, nor do you make quite this style of YouTube video for that either. It's really just hear the responses of people who enjoy it. So that would be awesome. That you know, if this takes off and people use my videos, at least as the foundation, because you're not going to go back and play these decks exactly card for card. You're going to change them, but if you need at least the framework of what the thinking was 12 years ago and why certain deck were built the way they were. And that's really what my channel is for. That's awesome. Okay, so we're going to transition a little bit into All right. some Would You Rathers. This is a newer segment that we are, this is actually the first time we're doing it. And I think that we're going to get a lot of enjoyment out of this. So some of these are going to seem like really benign and stupid questions. But I promise. As any teacher would say, as any teacher would say, there is no such thing. We're going to test the limits. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't know. I've been asked, is Europe a country before? I mean. All right. Well, okay. You know what? You might have the win on that one. <laughs> um, first question I want to ask you. 
And this one's not a stupid question. These days, would you consider yourself a player first or a creator first? Wait, I feel like I just asked that. No, I, I don't think you've asked quite that question. And that's, that's not even a tough question. Huh. You know, so this week, this week, on Monday, I recorded an old retro. On Tuesday, I went to my locals. And tonight, I'm kind of blending the middle of them by doing this podcast. I mean, I've been a pretty heavy Yu-Gi-Oh! engaged pr- tomorrow's locals again. So, I mean, that's four days in a row where it's like too retro, too current. Can I say because Pasadena is on the horizon? It honestly, deep down, one of the things that I would really love to is top one modern YCS to like feel like I can still do it. Even if I don't win. I mean, at some point, I've always thought to myself, I'll be able to devote the time and the elusive YCS win will eventually happen. That's why I don't dwell on that. But even just getting to the point of doing well at a YCS again would mean a lot. So right now I feel like because Pasadena's on the horizon, I feel like I'm a player today. Big picture, probably more of a content creator. But today, December you know, 24th or whatever the day is, Christmas Eve, I feel like I'm a little bit more of a player. Gotcha. Would you rather play old retro Yu-Gi-Oh circa, say, 2011? Or would you rather play modern? That's not even a real question. I mean, <laughs> I'd rather play so much old Yu-Gi-Oh, it's, it's not even funny. I mean, honestly, if old Yu-Gi-Oh became an actual organized thing with YCSs and a weekly local tournament in my area, I don't think I'd play modern Yu-Gi-Oh. Gotcha. That that's because I really, I really only have time to play one local a week. I have you know a pretty time-consuming job that everybody has a time-consuming job in this work forty hours, but I have to work at home. You know, I have to do two, three hours a night grading, planning, stupid things like that. I have a fiance that I want to hang out with. I'm, I do, yeah. You know, so I really can only do one, at least tournament a week. And then I try to make a video every week. I, I've not been really great at that recently with the holidays, but I try, try to make one video a week in addition. I couldn't do much more than that. If you're going to tell me that I can go play Troop Dupe format with 15 other people once a week, it's not even a question. And you're telling me that there's a YCS in a few months for that? I mean, this isn't even a debate. I would put down modern Yu-Gi-Oh! so fast your head would spin. All right, I got, I got one. Uh, Plant Synchro? Or uh, Edison. That's a good question. <laughs> I think I prefer Plant Synchro because I enjoy formats with the. Okay, so this is a. I need to add the disclaimer. I would prefer to play Plant Synchro the way it was played at Columbus, where a large percentage of the players ran Plant Synchro, and you could anticipate half mirror matches. I really love mirror matches particularly that kind of mirror match where Maxius part. I think they're really skillful. The games take forever. You have to play around gores. It's one of those formats where it's like, okay, I gotta have the enemy controller and I need to attack in this gores and or take their gores with this enemy controller. And I love that format. I love mirror match formats because I think it really rewards technical play and investing and understanding the intricacies of the mirror match. Not to say I don't love Edison. Edison is a really diverse format, both today and in 2010. I prefer Plant Synchro because how narrow of a format it is. 
Gotcha. Not modern plants synchro though. Like, people have totally changed Columbus and they've got yeah. like TG skill drain decks and nonsense. But actual Columbus, I played like half mirror matches. It was awesome. Would you rather a cloth playmat or a rubber playmat? I have had the exact same playmat, the exact same deck box, the exact same calculator since the very first YCS that I ever topped. And it is a cloth spell ground, the typical calculator case. And the first incarnation of the double deck box style that Adam Korn debuted. Not Adam Korn debuted, but the one that I recognized Adam Korn, who before I ever topped any YCSs or anything or regionals, I always looked up to. The one that he debuted at the nationals that Sean Montague won with X Saber. So I guess that would be 2010. I've had for 11 years the exact same three items, and I have not changed any of them. So it's cloth because that's just what I've had for. Ever. A original 94 gray spell ground that I paid. Yep, the 94 gray spell ground that I paid $200 for, which was a lot of money when you're, you know, 17 years old or however old I was back 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, if that deck box could tell stories though, huh? That has been the deck box for every single YC deck check that I've ever had. Would you rather the old player's choice sleeves or something like ultimate guard katanas. Yeah. I just paid $18 for a pack of player's choice for Pasadena. I'll tell you plenty enough. Oh, I man. have a nice original white ready to go. Wow. Caleb, you got any more? Uh, no, not really. That's the only one I could think of. Okay. Would you rather play remote duels or a typical locals? Typical locals. I like the human interaction. You don't really get the ability to sort of read. You know, I guess nowadays, I don't. What I used to be able to do playing every day, playing every week, talking to Paul is not nearly what I could do now. But, you know, back in the day, you used to be able to like track their eyes around the board, probably of this type of card based on where their eyes are moving. Nowadays, I barely even pile shuffle anymore. I just, all right, let's just go. Like back in the day, I'd like rigorously pile shuffle and I'd, you know, I'd. You know, look at their eye movements and things like that. And now, nowadays, I I barely even pile shuffle. I just show up and play. But in person, you don't really get to, or remotely, you don't really get to do those small little things that you may have been able to use to your advantage. So I like in person. Yeah, I I think that the majority of players would say that. But I knew I know that there's a small faction that really truly does enjoy remote duels. Mainly if I had you know, the space, the that goes off to the side. You know, <laughs> if I had the space to do it and it not interfere with the life of my cat or my fiance, I would probably remote duel more. I don't have that space. I am currently doing this sitting at my kitchen. Right. So that's just intrusive. My fiance is currently visiting her family, so I placed myself and my cat right now. But generally speaking, and if I were to do a YouTube video, it's almost like, all right, everyone, uh, don't come out into the main living area. And uh, not always a fair thing to request. Yeah, no, I'm in the same I'm in the same boat where I would love to do more remote dual stuff, but I gotta move around so much stuff. It's just not conducive. Yeah. Hey, if I had a place where it was permanently set up, I, I would probably do it more often. I've really enjoyed I've I've had the opportunity to play with pack retro Yu-Gi-Oh! a few times, and I've always really enjoyed doing that. I would love to do more of that. It it it's okay every once in a while. But I can't reasonably, you know, tell all right to my cat, to my fiance, I'm gonna 
remote duel and take up the whole house three times a week. Maybe once a month. I gotcha. All right. Well, the last thing we have to do before we leave is the podcast question of the day. It is our closing bit every episode. So it's last week's or last week's last Tuesday's podcast question of the day. Not a Yu-Gi-Oh! related one, but it's the holidays. What is your favorite Christmas song? So we got a lot of great answers. Little St. Nick by the Beach Boys. That is a really great answer. I've been wondering what the name of that song was forever, actually. I uh, can't believe I didn't know that. Uh, Sleigh Ride by YFU Baby. I've never even heard of that one. Um, Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. Uh, the John Denver Muppets Christmas album. Uh, my personal answer was either Jingle Ball Rock or Carol of the Bells. Um, uh, there were some other answers. Uh, let's check the Twitter. Carol of the Bells with or without vocals, of course. Um, there's a Portuguese song called Opento er- Eroso. I guess. I don't know. It's about Mary Joseph, maybe Jesus. Just a really beautiful song. Um, Christmas in Killarney or Bells Over Belfast. Uh, very Irish songs. Or His Favorite Christmas Story by Capital Lights. <laughs> Mistletoe and Wine by R- R- Cliff Richard. Uh, Donut by Twice. I've never heard of that one. Uh, Caleb, what's your favorite Christmas song? Oh, it's uh, Carol of the Bells, but it's a very specific one uh, done by a YouTuber by the name of... Uh, I am drawing a blank because I was just about to say it. Don't you just hate <laughs> when that happens? Yep. My favorite Carol of the Bells iteration is the Trans-Siberian Orchestra one. Not very original, but very cool. Yes. Like, like not a very original take. It's a very original, like, take on the song, but yeah. you know what I mean? Uh, it's specifically the one done by uh, Lindsey Sterling over on YouTube. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, Lindsey Sterling. Oh, I just missed the opportunity to see her Christmas show live in Providence. I... I like I told myself I wanted to go see it and then it just passed and I totally forgot to go. I've seen her live before though. That's awesome. That's wonderful. Joe, Honestly, I, I I had no answer until you said Lindsey Sterling. I am a massive fan of Lindsey Sterling. That's the type of music I like to listen to while grading that doesn't have any words. It's just all like sound. Sometimes I listen to the soundtrack of a video game. Sterling. Anything that she has ever produced, I am a fan of any Christmas song by Lindsey Sterling. Sign me up. I love it. All right. And today's podcast question of the day leading out very relevant to today's podcast. What is your particular favorite retro format? Uh, we may have asked a similar question, but I want to hear it again. I don't care. It's my pod. It's our podcast. We can do whatever we want. I mean, it's also very thematic to what we just talked about. Yeah. So uh, what is your favorite uh, retro format mine is probably tengu plant from 2011 uh i've built a somewhat high rarity version of that deck it's very nice caleb which were yours it used to be goat but then i built pac-man and edison just floodgate dot deck and it's just so much fun for you not the for, other person for me and i understand that it's terrible for for anyone who's playing me but it's fun for yeah. you uh joe what's your favorite retro format you think I'd have a, a immediate answer to this question? Just so difficult because <laughs> I'm partial to formats that I lived through and played, which is why I really appreciate formats where X Sabers were good, particularly ones after Rescue Cat were banned. That would be sort of my inclination. I'm talking, you know, both that Nationals format that I alluded to, the one with Librarian, but specifically before Librarian and some of those events, like the one that I reference with Orlando. I just really love that format. I, this might be surprising, but I really love the 2014 Nationals format. The one with Soul Charge. I really like Soul Charge as a card. I 
obviously a ridiculous card, but I think the Soul Charge mirrors when both players draw Soul Charge. Or so uh, those will be some of the sort of sleeper picks that I don't think you might necessarily anticipate me saying. And then I really do enjoy Chaos Return format as well. It's not one that I've got to play a lot, at least in a modern context, but I I do enjoy that format. So those are sort of my three. I can't really give you a definitive answer just because I'm torn so many different ways. That's what you know, 20 years of play does to you. Um, last thing leading out, people want to find you. They can find you where, Joe? So my YouTube is YGO History. There's an underscore between the, the YGO and the history, but that's pretty easy. Honestly, you could also just YouTube my name, Joe Giorlando. I do title all of the the videos that I post Yu-Gi-Oh! History with slash Joe Giorlando. So you could obviously just do that as well. On Twitter, you can also follow me. It's Joseph Giorlando on Twitter, my sort of full full name. And then in addition to that, underscore YGO History or at YGO History with the underscore the same way as the YouTube. Those are the primary places that you can find me. So YouTube. Twitter. I think I started in Instagram, but have never actually uploaded a picture. I told myself one day I'd use it to post pictures of decks before I put them back into my binder, but I've never actually done that. So just Twitter and YouTube. I guess Facebook too. I guess you can friend me on Facebook, Joseph Giorlando. Um, there was something else I wanted to add in. Oh, obviously there will be a link to your YouTube channel in the description down below. Of course. Um, there was something else. Oh, if people want to find you at YCS Pasadena, are you going to be there? I, you've alluded to it several times. So. I am going to be there. Yep. Awesome. And you're definitely going to sign my ARG Joe Girolando token, right? I will try to bring a Sharpie if I can remember. But yes, I'll sign. I don't want to say I'll sign anything anyone wants because I feel like that's a little too open-ended. But I will definitely sign old ARG tokens. I'll even try to bring my stack of ARG if someone doesn't already have one. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on, Joe. We really appreciate it. It went twice the length that our normal episodes go, but that's fine. It's been great discussion and great topic. And realistically, everybody's driving their in-laws anyway. It'll be fine. Yeah, that's true. Give you something to listen to if you have a long drive ahead of you. For sure. Um, so thank you all so much for listening to today's episode of the Top Cut Yu-Gi-Oh! podcast. Of course, we have our Patreon, our Discord, our Twitter. We have the link to Team Dark Arm Dealings, our sister YouTube channel. And of course, a link to ETB Games. All of that is in the description down below. Be sure to leave your reaction and leave your um, leave your reviews on Apple Podcasts. We do read them out live on the podcast. Uh, be sure to tell us what you think about the alternative formats announced by Konami. And be sure to answer the podcast question of the day. You can find us on Twitter at Top Cut Podcast. And of course, we all we have podcast discussion channels and podcast question of the day channels and things like that in the Discord server. So be sure to check that out and have a wonderful day and Merry Christmas. Take care, everybody. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.